welcome to The Prosper Project, the show that helps entrepreneurs build brands that impact the world and the bottom line. We know that success doesn't come in a one-size-fits-all package. That's why we're bringing you adaptable marketing strategies along with valuable insights from inspiring changemakers, firebrands, and visionaries. I'm Lorraine Sugart, founder of the disruptive brand agency, Prosper for Purpose. Now for this week's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Prosper Project. Thank you so much for joining me each week. I truly appreciate you tuning in. Now, one of my favorite things is the opportunity this podcast affords me to bring you insights from inspiring change makers. And my guest today certainly fits that description. Riggs Eckleberry has tapped into the trillion dollar water market and he calls it the new gold. As the founder and CEO of water technology company, Origin Clear, Riggs is a tech pioneer at the intersection of crypto and water. His company is giving entrepreneurs the opportunity to invest in a hard asset, providing the tools to make it successful and aiding the planet's sustainability. Welcome, Riggs. So good to have you here today. Such a pleasure, Lorraine. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Origin Clear, what it is, what you do. Yes. Well, you know, throughout the 80s, 90s, and the 2000s, I was a tech guy. And I love the dot-com because we went from using computers for calculation, like uh, accounting, right, to communication, which was, I loved it, right? And so I had some a lot of fun during the 90s and just afterwards. Eventually, my lack of modesty overcame me and I thought I should be a good CEO. So I, I remember talking to a fund that I was at the time, I was the number two of a software company that we're getting onto the NASDAQ. We did so successfully. And every number two thinks he can be a better number one. So I was like, I think I could be a good CEO. And they said, yes, but we're pivoting into green. We're not doing tech anymore. We're doing green. Okay. This is 2005, 2006, really going into 2007. And they said, and we specifically think that algae has a potential for being the next biofuel. I remember that period. Yeah. Was when oil was at $120 a barrel. There's a good incentive right there to innovate, right? Anything was possible. And so we launched this company at the time called Origin Oil because that algae was the original oil. It wasn't a bunch of dinosaurs, it was a lot of algae. And fascinating story, but the basic story is that petroleum came from algae and can be made today from algae. And so we launched this company and went straight away into the public space. And we were having so much fun. We were getting lots of media attention because, you know, algae, who knew, right? That kind of thing. Right. And then fracking got invented, which dropped the price of oil as low as $35 at one point. And we realized that algae for a long time was just going to be a science experiment, right? And so we took our algae extraction technology and turned it into a sewage extraction technology in water. And that birthed Origin Clear uh, in the water space. So we, basically took the same tech, reused it, and changed the company's mission. Now, one big difference is that from one day to the next, I was invisible. Water is like so taken for granted. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, I, I turn on the faucet, water comes out, I flush the toilet, water goes away, everything's fine, right? Well, everything's not fine, but I was having a very hard time getting attention for it. And so I just couldn't get 
people to recognize what the problem was, which was that our basic infrastructure for water that was built in the early part of the 20th century has been degrading continuously and is not funded properly at all. And that is starting to result in all these issues like Flint, Michigan, and other places we haven't heard about, but that are very, very real. And so how do you solve it? And I keep hearing, oh, we're going to throw billions at the problem and billions and billions and billions. The only problem is, is that nobody's doing it, right? The Biden administration did a $1.2 trillion budget for infrastructure. It was great, except it only had one two thousandth of it was devoted to water, mm-hmm. right? And so for some reason, water's out of sight, out of mind. It doesn't get the proper allocations. So you can't just keep wishful thinking like, well, someday they'll allocate enough money. Yeah, when we're in crisis, right? You know, we don't want to be waiting for crisis for these things to be addressed. Sure, Lorraine, but the crises happen. And they get like, look at Jackson, Mississippi, had terrible problems, still does. And I contacted a good friend of mine who's in the Mississippi Assembly and literally based in Jackson. And he said, oh, that's the city's problem. And I was there with that, right? So there's this like, not my table kind of problem. So to do about it. Now, in 2016, I read a seminal piece of research from Lux Research that said, decentralization of water is the new thing. No longer relying on the central utility, but just like with solar, doing it where you are, right? And I became a big apostle of that. I was shouting it from the rooftops. Again, nobody was listening at the time. But that has been changing for the last year, two two years. There's much, much more attention. And recently, uh, water tech, aqua tech, call it what you like, has been exploding. We just got a unicorn in the space from MIT, and it's starting to happen. So all of a sudden, the whole idea of empowering businesses to do their own water treatment, which they prefer, Mm -hmm. has become the thing. And here's what's amazing, Lorraine, is that 90% of all water demand is by industry and agriculture. So if we pull them away- so interesting. Right? We we don't think about that. And meanwhile, in California, we're being told to take short showers and so forth, but that is, we're only 10% of the problem, right? Yeah. So- The idea then is unburden the utilities, let businesses do their own treatment, and then that frees up the utilities to do the right job for the human beings that are literally at health risk every single day. So this is so interesting. So basically what you're saying is that concern and the focus on who takes care of our water should be kind of taken away from the government and the utilities and really put in the hands of the businesses for kind of purifying and taking care of their own water. And then the public utilities focus on the individuals, the households per se. Is that what I'm hearing? Exactly. And, you know, in Ireland, water is free. Well, why shouldn't it be free here? Well, 90% of it's being used by industry. So now to be clear, I'm not talking about incoming water. Generally, that's going to keep coming from the municipalities. We're not going to be drilling wells for everybody, except in extreme cases. What we're really talking about is the polluted water that is really messing up our rivers, lakes, and the ocean and our Mm -hmm. groundwater. California, for example, every single aquifer in California has hydrocarbon pollution from heavy oil, oil well drilling that, frankly, was not properly monitored for decades. And so the harm being done to the ecology is really terrible. And we can focus on that if, again, we let these businesses do their, their own treatment. Now, why do they like it? Number one, there's been a tremendous inflation of water sewage rates. 
It's out of control. People think that utilities are, are regulated with water rates. No, they're not. So it just goes up. And lots, for example, lots of households are defaulting on their water bills because they just can't pay it. And so businesses like a nice steady price. And secondly, they like being able to recycle the water. That way they save money and it's good for the environment and good for droughts and all that. And finally, they have more control over the regulatory situation than they do from the arbitrary central utility. So it's popular. And so we made it our mission to number one, downsize the technology from the big, big systems that they have in the sewage plants down to in the corner of a brewery kind of thing. Oh, wow. Right. That's amazing. I don't know if our listeners have ever been to a water treatment plant, but I certainly have been to several. I don't know why it sounds a little weird to admit that, but, and that's fascinating that you can reduce the size that much. So already there's a benefit and an impact. Bingo. The second part is we recognize that these businesses aren't necessarily funded for a million dollars for their water treatment system. They're not in the water business. And so we set up this program called Water on Demand, which is basically water as a service. So when you transfer over from the city to your own, you still pay on the meter. You don't have to worry about a big capital expense up front. And that is the big breakthrough that we're working on. And so Water on Demand, this new creation of ours, is what we've been working on for some time. In parallel, built a group called Modular Water Systems, which is these compact systems. And it's been a huge success. It's one of those overnight successes, but- Took years in the making. Yes, we know all about them. We started in 2018. We brought in a wonderful guru of this whole decentralization who'd been doing it again in the dark for many, many years and gave him a budget. And since 2018, he finally has emerged as a major player and we integrated it with Water On Demand. So now we have the technology side and we have the capital the service side, so you don't have to pay money up front. And the third important part is everybody in the water industry is funded by the big guys, funded by, for example, there's a major water as a service player that's funded by Morgan Stanley Infrastructure Partners. Mm. Well, you're not going to invest in Morgan Stanley, right? right? And another company in the space is a VC-funded company. Again, you're not going to get access. Right. We decided that we are going to basically be enable regular investors to invest in water programs at the asset level. And it creates a new investable asset with profit shares, with residuals that can be just like oil wells, they can be generational assets. And that has been amazingly popular because I don't know about you, but I'm constantly wondering, what do I do with the money I have? The stock market, forget it. Bitcoin, yeah. I don't know. And, you know, AI, forget it. It's already done. By the time we get to these things. Right. Yeah. The ship has pretty much sailed. Yeah. But water is still early. And so we've said water is the people's asset. That's our new motto. Yeah. And so number one, we fund it with regular investors. Number two, we use this compact technology that's breakthrough. And number three, we enable it to be capital free. And we're finally being noticed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is really exciting to me. So most of my clients are in the impact space. So to me, I see two sides of the impact here. I see the social impact in being able to create legacy, a legacy of wealth through investment. Yes. And the investment is in things that will make our planet healthier, keep our water flowing cleanly through 
this process, the technology and the equipment that you have created. So who are the people that this is intended for? Like if someone's listening, how do they know this is a good investment for me? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, so we're focusing on primarily the accredited investor, okay. which is, you know, if you're making 200000 a year or with your cohabitant in the same household, 300000 or you have a million dollars in assets outside of your primary home, then you qualify to invest in this program. We were also working on a crowdfunding so that anybody can join. That's pause at the moment for this related reasons, but it's a program that we're going to be continuing. So anybody can invest from $1,000 on up because I don't like it when only accredited investors can get in. I'm like, why? It's ridiculous, right? So the crowdfunding yeah, concept, you know, it does have limits. People going to invest up to 10% of their annual income, which is a reasonable limit. Mm-hmm. And as a result, you know, it's kind of like these uh, political campaigns that are much more robust if they take a lot of small donations versus a few big cats. They will have more impact over time, I think. And it's more of a movement, right? In the water industry, they said, the first trillionaire will be in water. We don't want one trillionaire. We want a million millionaires. I like that. Yeah. Make it accessible. That's so interesting. Well, I mean, water is the people's source, right? You kind of said it. It's like, you know, we need water to survive. It's something that we're all dependent on. And yet we haven't really been paying attention. Things like Flint, Michigan happen or other things. There was some bacteria in the water in Manhattan a week or so ago. And so they were told not to drink from the tap. And that's New York, which has the best water in the country. It's ridiculous. It's scary, right? It's scary. And so there is kind of this threatening gathering cloud, if you will, around to the quality of our water to the point where people are wondering, should I drink tap or should I just buy water by the gallon? But then we're talking about investing in plastic. So you're kind of offering a way that is a healthier investment, a healthier process and doing your best to make it accessible to as many individuals who wish to invest as possible. Correct. Now on the personal level, like you say, at the household level, I get asked that a lot, even though it's not our space. Because again, we work on the 90%, not the 10%. Right. But we do work with a lot of housing developments, for example. That's an interesting phenomenon. I'll get back to the tap water in a second, but this fascinating thing happening, which was post-COVID, there was a move, rural, uh, exurbia move, right? And as a result, many, many people started working from home. I mean, we moved in 2020 from Los Angeles to Clearwater, Florida. That's the palm trees behind me. And we love it. Well, what happens is it puts a lot of pressure on these small rural or semi-rural utilities. And in places like North Texas, where there's a huge land boom, they're way ahead of sewage. And so you have to have a self-contained system for the housing developments. And we're doing that very successfully. So that is a phenomenon that's happening at the residential level when you're talking about developments. Now, as far as personal situations go, people need to be very aware of the water situation. There's a site called environmentalworkinggroup.org ewg.org. And there's a, if you look up water quality by zip code, you can put in your zip code and you'll find out the quality of the water in your district, which is usually compliant, but unfortunately regulations have not kept up, right? So it's compliant, but then EWG shows you, well, it's compliant, but it's 5,000 times too high per more recent studies that have not been 
made their way into regulation. So I strongly believe that people should filter their water at home. And like us personally, we bought a whole home thing that 0.2 microns. And then under the sink, we have the RO, the reverse osmosis, that's ultra pure for our drinking water. And then we put special filters on the shower heads to make sure that we don't get the Roundup into our bodies because Roundup is a smaller particle than 0.2 microns. And it is extremely harmful in accumulations right now. Yeah. Um, it's just a good idea to, so that combination of things is what people should do. So we spent, you know, I don't know, thousand dollars. It wasn't a lot of money because we weren't trying to do an incredible, perfect job in the old home, but we. Right. That's a thread I definitely want to pull. Basically we can be having polluted water coming from our tap and it is legal because it's in with certain with strength, certain um, constraints of what the government at this point in time is saying is acceptable. Mm-hmm. And yet that water can be filling our bodies with toxins. And I think that that's something that we tend to trust. So we tend to trust that the water coming out of our tap is safe unless we're told not to. And I think that there's a call here for people to be really attentive and not take for granted. I know, you know, like, for example, in the health and beauty industry, that standards haven't been updated in about 100 years. And so not that anyone's trying to fill our sinks or our showers with polluted water, but we need to ask more questions and we need to look into this. So I really appreciate that you shared ewg.org. We'll include that link in the show notes as well. But Tell me a little bit about why you are so passionate about water, you individually, and wanted to focus on that with your company. Well, at first, it was a sort of necessity. We had to find a large enough space to pivot into because algae dried up for us. And I'm ridiculously persistent, so I was not about to close shop. And we have wonderful investors. So we managed to pivot. And the more I learned about it, the more I went, oh my gosh. And then I was like, you know, as a tech marketer, I'm accustomed to disruptive marketing, but I was finding it so hard to move the needle. It's like, what? Why is the sector so technology averse? There's good reasons. Number one, they're in public health and they got to watch out what they do, fine. But also there's this, what we got is good enough kind of situation. Right. And that's true, you know, it's true of the building trades, it's true of all kinds of brick and mortar spaces where it's not tech. I think only tech, because it's relatively low inertia, like, oh, I can change like that, right? Well, it's not so easy to do so in a physical industry because you're talking about large capital expense, the risk of bad technology, all these things matter. Whereas when I was in tech, I could launch something and uh, it didn't work, try again, you know, fiddle around. I even created this concept called mistake-based marketing, right? (laughs) Throw it out there. Oh, that didn't work so well. Try again, right? Fail forward, right? You know, you just keep doing it until you get the right one. And if you don't have to invest a lot in that, it's worth a try. Exactly. So it became a challenge for me. And I was like, I'm going to get this. I'm going to get it right. And we finally pulled together the missing ingredients. Now, in the intro to the show, you mentioned crypto, and that is something that's been dear to my heart. We've had to put it in a back burner because it's not critical right now. Ah. Eventually, though, the reason why we would eventually do a tokenized situation would be to permit, just like in fact, JP Morgan did that, they created a coin for money transfers, right? So to tokenize the dividend flow, 
on these water as a service type setups, mm-hmm. for the investors, but it's not essential today. We can do ACH for a long, long time. It's not like life or death. Yes, it's really interesting because then the person can take their tokenized royalty stream and easily transfer it and it becomes a market, all kinds of fun stuff like that. Yeah. But we've kind of said, okay, let's get the basics in place. And it's happening. It's getting tremendous currency. Right now, the modular water systems business is booming. You know, it's literally doubling or tripling year over year. But it's the old school thing where it's sold for money. So it's only with companies, businesses that are already, they figured out the leasing or whatever. But meanwhile, we got this new pioneer thing, which is water on demand, which we're building the capital fund for to so that because if I offer you a water system without paying up front, well, somebody's got to pay for it. Right. And that's right. where the investors come in. So we have the investors do these secured investments in the water systems, whereas literally they can place a lien if they're not getting their royalties. That creates an asset at the level very similar to the oil space. So is anyone in opposition? Are there any municipalities or it's kind of like you're breaking up the water monopoly, right? So are you getting resistance and from what sectors? Well, we know that the energy space has had a lot of resistance from utilities, but this is not the case in water. They're generally grateful. And the reason is that sewage has to travel on high pressure lines. And these, high, these mains, you've been hearing about mains blowing up. Well, those yeah. are sewage lines that burst. So then once you don't have enough high pressure lines, what do you do? Well, you can treated water can travel on gravity lines. And so technologically, because they're underfunded, they're like, okay, great. You're going to give us treated water. That's good to know, right? As opposed to, oh, now we got to deal with how do we get your sewage? And you get situations where municipalities have been refusing to service large polluters. Like, let's say there, there was an infamous case on the East Bay of California where a brewery was taking off and, and they were starting to really sell a lot of beer. Well, it takes seven to eight liters of water to make one liter of beer. So there was a lot of wastewater and the local county said, no, we're done. And they were having to truck most of their waste to another county. Oh, wow. Talk about impact, negative yeah. impact. Yeah. Um, and so they ended up doing their own system and then everybody was happy. So there's no opposition from municipalities. We don't see opposition from big water because if they see it, they see it as complimentary. It sells machines. So that's mm-hmm. Overall, I think it's something where the missing ingredient was awareness and that's starting to change. And people are starting to be like, oh, that's a workable way to solve the problem because we've just been sitting there like, well, how do we solve the trillion dollar water problem? Well, right. you know, we come up with a trillion dollars to save SVB and all these other banks, but we don't come up with a trillion dollars to save water. It is what it is. So you find a solution. And that's, Mm -hmm. I think people are starting to realize that this is not such a bad idea. I love this. So you talked a little bit about how entrepreneurs can take advantage of this new trend towards modulized water systems by investing either with your company, crowdsourcing. Are there other ways that maybe entrepreneurs that don't have the the revenue. We have entrepreneurs of all levels li- listening to this podcast. So I want to be really sure to give people an opportunity to think about how they can pay attention to this and know when the time may be right to jump in or other things that they should be aware of. So is there anything that you might say to an entrepreneur who's kind of in startup mode and maybe doesn't have the money to invest at this point? Right. Well, it's 
maybe three situations. The first one is where you are yourself a processor of water, right? Like a beer, mm-hmm. like your brewery. So you need to do something about that. And that's where it pays off to not have to put a bunch of capital into it. So that's that program, Water on Demand. Secondly, is the investment route, and it's as little as $1,000. But again, you know, you may not have the luxury of investing spare money into passive. Like a lot of people, me included, we spent years and years investing in what we do, not in 401ks or whatever. So for better or for worse, it's not a great idea, but hey. Hey, that's why we're crazy entrepreneurs, right? That's, that's what I'm Like, I'm going to make it with this thing, you know? And then the third thing that the water industry is undergoing a silver tsunami, meaning mm. aging out. And so there's tremendous demand for people to work in water. At one point, for example, we created a a product called Pool Preserver, which is a product that completely, you know, every once in a while, a pool can only be shot so many times and it has to get a complete like replacement, kind of like Keith Richards going to to Switzerland, right? Complete (laughs) replacement. But that's very wasteful of water if you just drain the pool and then fill it. And so there's operators in places like Arizona that have these machines that came from us that recirculate the water through a filter. And it takes, you know, six, eight hours and it's done. And that's very water saving, which yeah. matters in places like Arizona and California. So there is getting into the industry, which is interesting. I like um, that. Yeah. That unfortunately does require learning, you know, it's a trade, right? That's Absolutely. Sort of a, and some people are like, you know what? I've been doing this darn thing with, I don't know, selling widgets on Amazon. I'm kind of done with it. Then maybe do a trade, right? Yeah, I like that. One of the things that I have to say in listening to you is not only that you are innovative, but you're highly adaptable. And I think in 2023, coming out of just the crazy kind of entrepreneurial scenes that we've seen from 2020 to 2021, where everybody thought everything was going to turn around. And for some people it did, and for a lot of people it didn't. And that's kind of lingered as we've gone forward. I think a lot of people I know, I know a lot of people in the entrepreneur space are really struggling to kind of keep failing forward, like you talked about. And what I hear from you is that you just kind of accept that as a way of being. So what do you think it is either in your history or just, I guess, maybe in your DNA that kind of gives you the attitude, okay, well, that didn't work. We have to pivot to something that does. And how do you keep pulling on that strength or innate, I guess, resourcefulness to keep on going? Well, it's very true. And I think, you know, we say fail early, fail often, right? That's kind of a motto. The trick is to recognize quickly early on, like, oh, no, that's not working too well. Now it has to be not working for legitimate reasons. You could just have not done the thing, right? And therefore it's failing, not because it's a bad direction, but because you just didn't implement. I mean, coming back to the Amazon uh, business thing, there's, I've been, you know, there's, it's fascinating what's been happening in the space because there was a huge bunch of roll-ups that happened in the last three, four years where individual sellers who I know a few sold out to these sort of aggregators and the aggregators had a lot of trouble and many of them folded because it worked for the individual entrepreneur who was tweaking things on the go, didn't work so well for this massive sort of deep, depersonalized mm-hmm. thing. So you have to recognize that there is a special sauce and you have got to learn what makes the thing tick. Like in the Amazon space, there's all kinds of tricks. It's way too complicated for me, but there's all kinds of tricks of the trade that if you don't do them right, well, you lose your shirt. So 
I think it's super important to become extremely conversant with the space. Really, really dig deep. If possible, partner with somebody who's sharp in the space. You know, get a leg up, right? Mm-hmm. Get, a, get a friendly veteran to help you. That kind of thing. Because you know, I remember I had a bitter experience in the '80s where I, I had high hopes for the computer industry. So I came out of the nonprofit space and I went right into tech. And all of a sudden, I had 12 employees in Manhattan, and I was too green in, in the industry, and my decisions were not the best. And frankly, I just ended up giving up, and I had to literally give away the business. Mm-hmm. And it was a very big learning experience for me, which is make sure you really know the space you're entering, be willing to apprentice, work for somebody else, get help, do not be a solo operator. And wherever I've applied that, I've done well, right? And wherever I haven't, I have failed miserably. (laughs) Your honesty is so refreshing, but your insight is so valuable. I mean, that's so important. I hear you. And having a mentor or an advisor or a, a partner, whatever that looks like, I think is really helpful emotionally as well as you know, professionally, like having someone that you can go to and saying, this happened, is this normal, right? Because people are there. And I think that's why we're seeing people failing and just deciding to quit and not really like saying, what do I really need? Do I need to really implement better? Do I need a mentor or a different mentor? Do I need to take this as a stage of learning? And it could be, it probably is different answers for different entrepreneurs. So I really appreciate that. And I also think that perhaps after you've kind of risen from the ashes a number of times, you do kind of say, okay, these are the things I've learned, and this is how I'm going to try to implement them going forward. But the nature of entrepreneurism is that you have to take risks, and risks are not without failures. Well, you know, decades ago, I was actually a working shipmaster, captain of merchant ships. And Wow. Consequences of taking bad risks are humongous, right? Yeah. And so, you know, that there's really learning the trade is where it's at. I confess that I was super young when I did it and young and brash. And I was constantly kind of like rescuing myself from dire situations. And again, sometimes we are entrepreneurs because we're independent, but you can't, you got to watch out about becoming a the only one, the one hero, you know, what you want is League of Avengers, not Superman, right? Yes. So work, get people that my company started really doing well when I started attracting people who I'd have to tell them Saturday night, dude, stop texting me, go get dinner, go to bed, get it, watch a movie. You know, that's the kind of people you want, right? Well, it took a long time to get that. And that's really what you want. You want to have a good cadre around you, as opposed to people who depend on you. And so it's all very well to be Captain Picard, but you better know what you're doing. I love it. I love it. That's so good. We could have a whole other conversation on hiring the right people. That's great. I love it. I don't believe you can hire them. It's something that has to happen organically, in my opinion. Ah, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. We can have that conversation. Happy to, because I've tried to figure out how it is that we get good people. And how is that we don't? And it's fascinating. 
Yeah, I think we will. I think we have to have a part two to this conversation and talk about that because I think that's another thing that I know I've struggled with that. My agency's 10 years old. I've had teams, you know, 20 years before that. And um, it can be tough to, you know, to hire people that are really passionate. And I think you're right. I think some of it is what they bring to the table. And I kind of advocate that I'd rather have people that I could help train up to make sure their skills were top notch, but that bring the right attitude and the dedication rather than the opposite. But in an ideal world, you'd find both. Well, and part of it is that you start to have people are attracted to the smell of success, right? Mm-hmm. So the more your message is good, the more you're doing the right thing, the more people go, hey, I want to be part of that, right? right? So that's an important part of it. But, and also, like I remember in the 80s, I was hiring employees where I should have been attracting partners. Mm-hmm. And the person I eventually gave the business to, well, why didn't that make him a partner day one? You know, we just were to work together because he was, remains a fantastic. I mean, he's become a millionaire off of the business I gave him. Well, why, and did much more. I mean, he's brilliant in his own right. I'm not yeah, saying, yeah. I'm not saying he was a parasite, but the point is, I could have treated him differently on a more egalitarian basis. And that's what I've taken away from that. You know, we have, for example, restricted stock options, stock units, RSUs, which you don't have to buy. They're granted because I hate options. They end up underwater and then you got a bunch of, you know. Then you have to filter the water all over again. Ooh, nice. Well said. (laughs) Well said. But anyway, so, you know, this fund that I was working with said, just take care of yourself. Like, no, everybody in the company has RSUs. Everybody. And that changes how things work. People care more. Yeah, I love that. So we've been talking about success. This is the Prosper Project. What does it mean for you to prosper? It really means, in my opinion, making a difference while also being in the black. In other words, do it and do it in in a commercially viable way so that it can continue, right? And so I've always been looking for that combination of workability and high mission integrated with each other. And to me, that's success. I love it. Riggs Eckleberry, thank you so much for being my guest today on The Prosper Project. It's been such a delight speaking with you. Well, I'd love to be on your show again. We'll talk about that hiring thing. Okay. Sounds good. All right. Thank you so much. And thanks to everyone listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of The Prosper Project. If you want to grow a peerless, profitable brand, please hit the subscribe button so you never miss an episode. And if you find value in our show, please help us reach others by sharing an episode and leaving a review. In appreciation, please visit prosperforpurpose.com for more free resources to help you grow your business.